You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Good morning, church family. How are you guys doing? Good. It is great to be here with you this morning. Uh, if you guys don't know who I am, my name is John Hall. I'm one of the elders here at Citizens Church, and I would like to take this opportunity to wish all of you a happy 4th of July on this 245th birthday of our nation. Grateful that we live in a country. Yeah. Grateful that we live in a country that allows us to gather together and to worship as we choose. So I hope all of you get to celebrate this day uh, with your family and with your friends. And so I'm grateful for all of you. I'm grateful for this church. I'm grateful for this opportunity to open up God's word with you. And so let's do that this morning. Let's take a look and see what God has to say to each of us this morning. I think one of the clearest signs of spiritual maturity is a reliance and a dependence upon God and at the same time less of a dependence upon self. As John the Baptist said, he must increase and I must decrease. As God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end and everything in between, we come to understand that life without him does not make any sense at all. And because this is true, the disciples, the kingdom citizens, begin to implement disciplines and rhythms into their lives so that God and his kingdom become the focus of life. And one of those disciplines and rhythms needs to be prayer. Prayer follows theologically an understanding of who we are in light of who God is. He is holy and sovereign and altogether good and lovely and on my own and in my own strength and wisdom, I am none of those things. And in light of this, it just makes sense that I would lean into God to both sustain and to guide my journey on this earth. Prayer becomes an adventure, a life pursuing what it tells us in Matthew 6, 33, that we would seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all the necessary and the needed things would be added by God. That scripture is right in the middle of a passage on anxiety and stress. And it's not that we don't see anxiety and stress as real things or even potentially crippling things. We acknowledge that reality. But we also need to understand that we have a heavenly father who cares deeply for us. He cares for us wherever we are in life. And so whatever pit or hole or crisis we find ourselves in, we will also find our heavenly father there with us. First Peter 5, 7 tells us that we can cast all of our cares, our anxieties, our worries on him. Why? Because he cares for us. What a beautiful truth to be told out of Scripture. He cares enough to allow us to see him as the one who has both made a way for us to be forgiven and delivered from our sins through the atoning work of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And if you find yourself in this place today or listening online, perhaps, and you know that you're far from God, I want to implore you to listen to me on this one point. God loves you. God loves you and cares deeply for you. And God is calling you back to himself in all of that. In the Old Testament, there was a period of time in Israel's history where they had divided the nation into two different nations. The one in the north retained the name of Israel. The one in the south came to be called Judah. And over time, both nations wandered away from God. They, de- they devastated their lives, their nation, their relationship with God because they tried to be their own source of life and love and peace, and in the end, this caused them to sin and even to pursue sin with their whole whole hearts, which led to their destruction and devastation. God judged Israel by allowing them to be conquered by a nation called Assyria. He then later judged Judah by allowing them to be conquered by another nation called 
Babylon. Now, why am I bringing this dark piece of history into the sermon? There's something about this that possibly correlates to your own life. The way that you have pursued things that you selfishly believed would bring you life, love, and peace, and you've ultimately discovered that those selfish, even sinful pursuits have brought about anything but peace and joy. But I also want you to see that this relates to our passage in Matthew 7, and here's how. Let's concentrate on what happened to Judah. The Babylonians carried off the nation of Judah and forced them into exile. And they were in exile for roughly 70 years, an entire nation imprisoned by another nation for decades. And so there were people who were carried off into exile that died in exile. There were other people who were born into exile. And those who were born into that captivity had never seen their homeland and would someday return to reclaim their nation. And in this moment, how would God treat them? How would he respond to them? Would he respond with the attitude, hey, I told you so, I told you this was going to happen? Or would he go the other route, the old tried and true? Hey, if you behaved yourselves, and if you behave yourselves from now on, I might find it in my heart to take you back as my people. Well, the prophet Jeremiah wrote a letter to those who were in exile in Babylon to inform them exactly how God would respond to them. And here's what this letter said. You'll find this letter in Jeremiah 29. It's just a few verses from that letter. It says this, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon... I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. And then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your, your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places to which I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. And so in Jeremiah 29, we find a picture of the gospel. God made a way for them to be saved. He made a way for them to be delivered, restored, and even given a future and a hope. And praise God, he's still in the business of doing this in people's lives today. And in all of this... It should create within us a deep love for the Father, a love that desires to know him and to have more of him, a love that creates within us the desire to chase after him and even to lean into him and to trust him for our daily needs and just the basic guidance as we journey through this life. And as we know him more intimately and more deeply, his spirit begins to transform us into what he intends for us to be. And as that transformation ends up making us more and more like his son, Jesus Christ, and as we become more and more like Jesus, a big part of what God intends for his people is to become people of love. Last week, Jamin took us through the first six verses in Matthew 7, and we learned in that passage that it implores us to be people of love. Kingdom citizens draw near to other people to love them, not to play judge and jury in their lives. You aren't allowed to play the role of judge because there is only one judge. And besides that, not only is there one judge, but you don't want that job because it comes with some heavy, heavy responsibility and some stuff you don't want in your life, especially if you're not able to handle the responsibility of being a judge. And just by the way, none of us are able to handle the responsibility of being a judge in another person's life. But in the same way that the kingdom citizen is a person of love who does not play the role of judge, the kingdom citizen is also a person of prayer. And here's why. 
People who isolate themselves from God, people who try to go their own way, to do things in their own strength and their own power, miss out on the life that God intends. And in that same vein, they miss out on God himself. So the kingdom citizen recognizes correctly certain things about themselves. And they recognize certain things about other people. And they recognize certain things about God that are true. And in light of all this, they embark on a life that is built off of a reliance and a dependence on God. Not out of a begrudging obligation or duty, but out of a deep, deep, deep love for the Father. And so all of this brings us to our text today. So let's take a closer look at what it has to say. In the first couple of verses in our text in Matthew 7, verses 7 and 8, You'll find that it says, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds and to the one who knocks it will be opened. And so as we read this and as you just glance at it, you could take it to mean one certain thing, right? It could mean, hey, I get whatever I want. All I got to do is ask for it. So does that make... God, a genie in a bottle, that essentially whatever we want is just there for the taking. All we have to do is ask and it's ours. Well, let's explore this idea both theologically and practically through a series of questions. So question number one is this, has that been your experience? For me, that has not been the case. I have prayed some silly things in my days, okay? I've prayed, hey God, by the way, if you don't mind, I'd love to have a Lamborghini waiting for me in the parking lot after church is over. And hey, God, while you're at it, why don't you just deposit $20 million into my bank account? And God, by the way, why don't you give me this? And why don't you give me that? And give me a little bit of this and that. And I've prayed some silly things. And you know what? None of those things have come true. So practically, that hasn't been my experience. I doubt it's been your experience either. Which leads me to question number two. If God doesn't give us what we want, does this passage make him a liar? Isn't this passage teaching us that he'd give us whatever we want? And if he doesn't do that, does that make him a liar? Well, let's go on to three and four here. Question number three is this. If God is there simply to answer our every whim, is he even God? And question number four is this. If God is always giving our every wish, who is really in control? Is that scenario, in that scenario, is God sovereign or are we sovereign? And this is how you take a passage of scripture. And this is how you twist it into something it never was and how you come away with a teaching that is not only erroneous, but evil. And in seeing scripture wrong, we end up seeing God wrong. And in doing so, we worship and we serve the creation rather than the creator. So if God isn't a genie in the bottle, then what does this passage teach us about him? I believe it teaches that he is something better and even bigger than any of this, but how? Being in relationship with God is something that is assumed by Jesus at this point in the sermon. It is simply understood. He expects that we are in relationship with God when he teaches these things. But here's what's crazy about this passage. This is an invitation by Jesus to enter into the life of a disciple, knowing that God expects his disciples to ask the kingdom-oriented, God-sized prayers. The ask or the request is made knowing that God desires this and wants to answer those prayers. This is an invitation by Jesus to journey with God in a way that only God could provide. It is the challenge to try out the God-sized prayer, if you will. It would not be too strong to say that Jesus is almost 
daring us to pray in this way. He's imploring us to see prayer as more than just a request, but rather a journey that we embark on together with God. And so if God isn't a genie in a bottle, and he is way better and bigger than that limitation, then is he merciful in not answering our selfish, self-centered request? See, the real gift given by God is that like any good father, he gives only good gifts to his children. He does not give what will bring harm, and he does not tolerate idolatry, the worship of self, as an attempt to relate to him. Some of the best gifts given by God are the prayers that he does not answer, and rather than giving us what we want, God allows us to struggle or to go without because God has better things in mind and in store for us. So let's test this against other passages in Scripture. Let's see what the Bible has to say on this. The first passage I want to take a look at is out of Matthew 21, verses 18 through 22. And in this, Jesus is teaching that prayers are answered when they are accompanied by faith. Now, the context for this is this takes place the day after Jesus has cleansed the temple. And so it says this in verse 18, in the morning, as he, meaning Jesus, was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it found nothing on it but only leaves, and he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. Now, this is a difficult passage to interpret. There are some spiritual implications we don't have time to get into about how a tree bears fruit, that kind of thing. But when the disciples saw it, in verse 20, this is the thing that always intrigues me and kind of humors me. When the disciples saw it, they saw the whole thing go down. Here's what happened. They marveled. They were in awe. They wondered at what Jesus did. And notice the question they asked Jesus in verse 20. How did the fig tree wither at once? Now notice the question is not about Jesus' motivation in doing that. They didn't ask Jesus, why did you cause the fig tree to wither? They asked him, how did you do it? Now, most of the time when you ask a how-to question, what are you after? You want to figure out how to do that, right? You want to emulate it. You want to copy it. In other words, Jesus, do we have the ability to make trees wither? I mean, that's basically their question. Verse 21, here's how Jesus answers the question. Jesus answered them, truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And the whole point of the passage is in verse 22. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. It's conditional on what? If you have faith. So part of what Jesus is teaching us about prayer is that prayer has to be accompanied by faith, a belief that God can do what you're asking him to do. The other passage is in James 4, the first three verses. In this, James is teaching that prayers are answered when we ask with right motives of the heart. So verse 1 says this, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Yes and amen. That is going on. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. In other words, you want something, you don't have it, so you take matters into your own hand. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Listen to what he says. You do not have. Why? Because you do not ask. Why is it that you don't have it? Because you're not, you have not bothered to ask God for that thing. You don't have because you do not ask. Verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. 
So Jesus would teach us that prayer has to be accompanied by faith. James would also teach us that prayer has to be done with right matters of the heart. So just to make this crystal clear, here's what we've seen so far about our passage in Matthew 7. That one God is not a genie in a bottle. That God is not at our beck and call, but rather he is the sovereign Lord of the universe. And rather than being a secret religious formula for getting whatever we want, the ask, seek, knock thing is an invitation by God to ask the God-sized, kingdom-oriented prayer. And when we pray, rather than making self-centered requests, there must be an element of both faith and right motives. And so this is where we're at at this particular point. So with all of that in mind, let's talk about the dynamics of the ask, seek, knock in Matthew chapter 7. There are several things that I would want you to know about this. The first of those is that the ask, seek, knock is a motivation for prayer. Okay, in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us how to pray. He says, go to a secret place, go alone by yourself. You don't make a spectacle of prayer. When you pray, you have your theology in line, your theology's right because you have to know who you're asking and then you have to line up your need. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Whose name other than God would be hallowed? And so he's got the theology in line. He gives us the model. He teaches us how to pray. Matthew 7 is not teaching us how to pray. Matthew 7 is teaching us why we pray, the motivation for it. And it's teaching us how crazy fun prayer can be when you get into this mode of asking the God-sized, kingdom-oriented prayer. The second thing this is teaching us is that the ask, seek, knock is a manner of prayer. And as a manner of prayer, there are three things here I would want you to know about it. One, that there's an element of perseverance in the way that we pray. Another is that there is a progression of intensity in the way that we pray. And the other is there's an active participation. So let's take these one at a time. Perseverance. This passage is not teaching us that prayer is a single request and then you just wait for an answer. Prayer is a call to draw close to God and to draw close to God consistently and persistently, to trust that he hears us, to understand that our persistence does not annoy or aggravate him. There's the full expectation on God's part that we will ask him again and again and again and again and again for whatever matter is on our heart. And to see prayer as the opportunity to journey and to do life with God, and we do that consistently. So there's this element of perseverance in the ask, seek, knock. There's also this progression in intensity. Think about what those words actually mean. When you start off, the first place you start is to ask. It simply means to make a request. And so you're asking God for whatever is on your heart. But when you take a step up in a level of intensity, you begin to seek for those things. So what does the word seek mean? It means that you search out with intent. You're actually intentionally looking for something. You spend time and effort into those things. And so it's, it's a step up in its progression of intensity. And then you take it another step up in the level of intensity is that you begin to knock. Now, what is knocking? It is an action, usually a loud, annoying noise that brings attention to the fact that you are at the door expecting to gain entrance into that place. It is the intentional interruption of activity of those on the inside of the door so they understand the fact that you are still on the outside and you want to gain entrance into that place. It is the expectation 
that the door will be opened by those on the inside who have already gained access to that place. It is the expressed desire to gain access to what lies on the other side of the door. And just to be clear, it is the expectation that God himself will open that door for us. And God is not annoyed and God is not bothered by any of this. And then there's the idea that it's also an active participation on our part, that the sincere godly prayer request should not be passive. In praying, there's a daily active participation alongside the act of praying. For example, if you are looking for a job, you should not just pray that God would drop a job into your lap and sit there and wait on it. You're actively looking for a job all the while you're praying for the same. And so there's this active participation that accompanies this active praying. And they go hand in hand, side by side. We're doing life with God is praying to God. And praying to God also means we're doing life with God. And it just becomes this intertwined thing that cannot be divided or taken apart. So that's the manner in which we do that. It is, on one hand, a perseverance, a progression of intensity, and also an act of participation. The Asik Nak is also a process of prayer, where prayer becomes a journey we take with our Heavenly Father. It is a moment in time when we get to see who God is. It is also a moment in time where we get to see how limited and frail we really are. And it is a moment in time where we get to see how much God really is in control and see how desperately we need him at the same time. The ask, seek, knock is also a trust in our Heavenly Father, not necessarily an understanding of the circumstances that accompany that. I'm the father of five boys, and all five of my children, this same thing has happened over and over again. When they reach an age where you're trying to teach them how to swim, and they're little guys, and you're trying to get them to understand that actually learning how to swim can be a lot of fun. When you get into the water, there's certain activities you can do. It'll be something you can do for the rest of your life, and it'll be something you could do in the future with your family and with your kids, and it'll be a great time, and I'm your dad. And here I am standing a foot away from the edge of the pool. And there you are with the floaties on your arm. And we've made this as safe as we possibly can. If I somehow slipped at the time that you jumped in, those floaties would still catch you. But I'm not going to do that. I'm your dad. I'm, I would protect you. I would give my life protecting you. I would do everything that I could within my power. If you were going to go there and you were going to drown today, I would drown trying to save you. I mean, I am your dad. I am the good father. I will not let anything happen to you, my kids are standing there going, yeah, but that's water. I mean, that's the, I could die in that. I mean, this could be bad for me and this could end really bad. But I'm like, I'm your dad. I'll catch you. I'll catch you. And they're like, I I don't know about this. And yet how many times in my life am I doing the same thing with my heavenly father? That God is asking me, jump in. I'm your dad. I'll catch you. You're safe in my arms. I'll protect you. And I'm going, I don't know. Let's, let's think about me for a second. This, is, this could be really bad for me. But in this passage, we get a different picture of prayer. It is more than a secret meeting in an inner room for a brief period of time where you then go on your way on your, on your daily after you prayed. Prayer is this intense, active, persistent, consistent journey that we embark on with God. There's a sense of danger and the unknown along with this incredible intimacy. It is a step into the dark. It is a step into the unknown, all the while taking God's hand with one question hanging in the air. And it is God himself who is asking the question, do you trust me? Do you trust that I am a good father? 
Do you trust that what I will give you will be for your good? Do you trust that I will allow you to receive, find, and travel through the open door? Do you trust that I will provide bread and fish and not the stone and the snake? Do you trust that I know more and my ways are higher? Do you trust that I am God and you are not? And in praying this way, we discover that our Heavenly Father is a good Father who can be trusted. And the ask, seek, knock also teaches us and it reveals where a person turns for answers in life. Where is it in life that you ask, seek, knock? Here's something that may surprise you. We're already doing this on our own. We ask, seek, and knock somewhere. So this reveals something about who you see as ultimate. And it really boils down to two answers. Either you're going to see yourself as ultimate or you're going to see God as ultimate. And the implications of where you ask, seek, knock have a profound impact on your life. I'm about to ask a difficult question. I'm not asking you to answer this out loud, but answer this question to yourself, but answer it honestly. Is God a legitimate reason to pursue with gusto the things that he has for us? In other words, if you could have all the things that God has in store for us without God himself, would you still want those things? One answer leads to worship. The other leads to idolatry. Is God daring us to step into this life to see how good a father he really is? Does the ask, seek, knock communicate something about how big the ask should be? Does it blow you away that God seems to be daring us to pray? It should. It really, really should. And here's where we learn something about the character and the nature of God as we come to him with our request. What is his motivation in wanting to answer these requests? And in the rest of our text, verses 9 through 11, we find the answer to that. It says this, Or which one of you, if his son asked him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asked him for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? See, fathers instinctively know how to give good things to their children, especially those things that are essential. We know how to give the bread and the fish rather than the stones and the snake. But it's in this one statement, it should give us the encouragement to trust our Heavenly Father. Why? Because two things are communicated in this one statement. The first thing is this, that God will only give what is good for us. In fact, what is best for us is what God is giving to us. And the second thing is this, he will not allow us to pursue the stone and the snakes when it is bread and fish that we need. This is the love and mercy he shows me by not answering my requests made with wrong motives. There are times that I pursue the stone and the snakes, deceived into believing they are what's best for me because I maliciously desire those things. But my good heavenly Father will not give me what will bring me harm, only what is for my good. This idea is fleshed out completely in verse 11. And there are three ideas that Jesus communicates in this verse. One is that Jesus fully, fully understands our character. If you then, who are evil. Now, on one hand, Jesus is calling us out. On the other hand, I hope this comforts you. And here's why it should comfort you. It's not that Jesus is, is expecting that our ask, seek, knock will be done in moral perfection. It's not as if Jesus is expecting that our motives will always be pure. But I don't know about you, but for me, that's a great comfort because Jesus already knows that I'm a busted, messed up individual. 
And here's the purpose of bringing all this out. If our earthly fathers who are inherently evil and flawed know how to give good things to their children, how much more can we trust God, the perfect father, who knows how to give the very best to his children? So the second thing this communicates to us is that the quality of what God gives to his children is the very best. It says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good things, how much more will your heavenly Father give? So I can trust that God not only has my best interest at heart, but also gives to me what is best for me out of his perfect, perfect knowledge. While I may not fully understand what God is doing, I can trust that he has my best in mind. And I don't know about you, but I'm amazed at how often I forget this truth. I'm amazed at how many times I could tell God exactly what I need and when I need that without ever consulting him and without ever praying to him. And yet I seem to know what's best for me and I'm deceiving myself in that moment. And all the while my heavenly father is the perfect father. And how much more will he give good things to me if I would simply ask? And that brings us to our third thing this is teaching is that God gives good things and he gives good things to those who ask him. So we've already established that God gives what is best for us, but this takes it one step further. He gives good things to those who ask him. I want to make this perfectly clear, that God is asking us to ask, to seek, to knock, but he's expecting us to ask. Yes, he knows what we need before we ask him, but he's asking us to make the ask to those who will ask him. And so once again, we're left with the idea that God is imploring us, even daring us to ask him. The invitation to commune with God, it is open. The invitation to journey and to do life with God is open. The invitation to seek him, to seek what he sees as best for me is wide open. It is open for God to communicate. And together, let's make the journey with God to ask, to seek, to knock, all the while knowing and trusting we have the perfect father who will give good things to us when we ask It would be easy to end the sermon at this point. There's one more place I want to go, and this is where things get far more difficult. What if we ask, seek, knock for good and right things, and we don't receive them? To take it a step further, what if we ask for good and right things and end up suffering because of it? When I was 18 years old, uh, I took off for college, and uh, I attended Hardin-Simmons University in Abilene, Texas. And uh, as an incoming freshman, I had to attend freshman orientation, and so it was a week before school started. And so like all other freshmen, I was dropped off in my dorm room, left there by your family, and it's the first time you're out on your own, and it's kind of a new, strange world, and you, all your insecurities come up, and you wonder if you're going to make friends, and you wonder if all of these things are going to happen. And so my first night... Freshman orientation, meeting with my orientation family, I met a guy named Clark, and Clark and I became fast friends. One of the things you need to know about Clark is that he was a smart aleck, but not only was he a smart aleck, he was a world-class smart aleck. And so there are smart alecks, and they're just annoying, but there are world-class smart alecks, and somehow in there being a smart aleck, it's just kind of charming. And for Clark, that was true. Just to give you an example of what I mean, uh, after a few days of hanging out with Clark and getting to know him better. There was another kid who was going to Hardin-Simmons and he's just trying to meet people and he's in the same place we are. His name was Brandon. He came up to us and he said, hi, my name is Brandon, but my friends call me Bebop. And Clark was not impressed at all by any of this and he replied without missing a beat, hey, Brandon. 
And through all of this, Clark and I became friends. We pledged a fraternity together. Clark helped me get my first real job in ministry in the summer of 1990, where he and I both worked for First Baptist Church of Midland. Uh, Clark had a nickname for everyone, and if you were in good with him, he probably had about three to five nicknames for you. Uh, I could bore you with story after story after story of things that we did in college, but I won't do that. I'll just say we had a lot of fun together. And then life happened. I got married my last year in college, and I didn't see Clark as often. And after he graduated, he got married, had a beautiful family of his own, his wife Candace and two beautiful daughters. And we went our separate ways, and we did life in separate places. Clark's goal was to know Jesus, to help other people know Jesus, and especially to point kids to Jesus. That was his passion. That's what he spent his life doing. Last year, the unthinkable happened. November, I found out that Clark had contracted COVID, but hey, it was Clark, he was young, he was healthy, he always bounced back from things. He would bounce back, but that's not what happened. Instead of getting better, he gradually got worse, and in December, he succumbed to the virus and died at the age of 49, leaving behind a wife and two teenage daughters, one of whom just graduated high school back in May. It is a good and a right thing to want to be married. It is a good and a right thing to want to be married to your spouse and to your old age. And of all the ways that Candace and her two daughters imagined 2021 playing out, I'm sure it never crossed their minds that they would do so without Clark. And yet that's exactly what is playing out in their lives. Candace has been very open and transparent about her struggles and her obstacles and even her victories while struggling with her grief over Clark. I've watched all of this play out from a distance, mainly keeping up with how she's doing through her Facebook post. And in June, she posted something that struck me. And so I reached out to her and asked if I could share this Facebook post in this particular sermon. She gave me her blessing to, to do so. And here's what her Facebook post said. I saw something yesterday that since Clark's COVID illness and death always kind of stops me in my tracks. It said that God is good because prayers had been answered. Here's a harder truth to grasp, but that is absolutely true. God is good whether or not our prayers were answered how we hoped. God is good when your 49-year-old husband dies. God is good when one of your best friends dies of cancer. God is good when your sweet parents pass away within a year of each other. God is good. Our circumstances never change that fact. And when anything, when we add anything to that sentence, we're not showing the world who God really is. The ask, seek, knock of Matthew 7 does not teach that life will be without suffering or heartache. It does not teach that in the good gift that the per perfect Father provides will be empty of difficulty, struggles, or even trials. And even in the midst of those things, we can lean into the truth that God is good. That even when we don't understand what is happening, I can still trust that God has my best in mind. His goodness and his trustworthiness does not end because we're suffering. And that's a brutal truth, but one we need to know. So I want to ask you this question. Where do we go from here? What happens? I want to remind you of some beautiful things by ending the sermon this way. Do you realize that Citizens Church is almost two years old? And God has been good to us. He has been so good to us. Better than we deserve. 
I look back on the last two years and I see how God has sustained us through some incredibly difficult times. We started this church in crisis and then about the time we were coming out of that season, a worldwide pandemic hit. And yet in spite of all this, I see where we are and our future is very, very, very bright. And we can attribute all of that to God himself. There are two things I would want to remind us of. The first is this. Let us never take for granted how good God has been to us. Let us always remember, let us always be a church that lays what's happened here at his feet. He deserves the credit. He deserves the glory. He deserves the honor for all of it. It was not us. It was him. And let us always be a church who remembers that. The second thing is this. Let us be a church that never fails to ask God for the God-sized request as we labor together, all the while asking, seeking, and knocking for kingdom things. And that is my prayer for all of us. That is my prayer for you individually. May God grant those things to us as we ask him those things. May he let us receive those things, let us find those things, and open those doors for us. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for being such a good father. Thank you for being the perfect father. Thank you for being the father that none of us could be. You've been so incredibly good and kind to us. You've looked after us. You've watched us. You've guided our steps. We praise you. We honor you for that. I thank you for being that. I pray for those who are here today in this place. I pray for those who are listening online. God, you know, I don't know, but you know where they are. And Lord, there may be some here that are hurting, that are suffering, that are far, far from you, who need to find you. And in their hearts, they're asking if you're real. And I pray that you would show up in a mighty way, in a way that only you can. I pray that you would speak into their lives, into their hearts, in the way that you do, and if possible, bring salvation and deliverance and all the good things that you do. I thank you for watching over us. I thank you for loving us and being kind to this church. I pray all these things in the name of your precious son, Jesus Christ. Amen.